Hello and welcome to episode 54 of The Witcher chapter by chapter book review where I'll go through a summary of the latest chapter and give my detailed thoughts on it. Today, discussing chapter 8 from The Lady of the Lake. Okay, well, this is a this this is going to be kind of different this episode because of how this chapter is written out. It's a different one, and um, I don't know that a lot of people find this to be an entertaining chapter. It's, uh, well, there's a lot of uh, military warfare talk, and um, some people like that, of course, but some people are kind of, they just don't find it entertaining. I'm one of them, I'll be honest. It's, uh, it's an important chapter for sure because you really learn a lot that, you definitely want to learn, um, considering what we have been, uh, the plot that we've been following this whole time. So it kind of provides a good conclusion to something and I'll stop being so cryptic in a second here, but it's just, um, you know, the format of this chapter, it's not totally unfamiliar in these books, but it is, um, it's kind of amped up. It, the, the basically, there's a lot of just changes in perspectives. And that happens way more times than it does in the usual chapter. And I think that that can make it kind of complicated. And I think that Sapkowski did it this way to try to immerse the reader in a certain feeling. Um, to kind of really feel like how chaotic it is and how uh like like this very important battle happens and i think that he really wants to let the reader feel almost like they're present but uh, i think it really it just makes it more confusing it did for me i mean i'm sure uh, some of you have probably read this chapter maybe on your first read through, if you've read it more than once, if you read the books more than once, um, you, you understood everything that was going on right away. You didn't, um, kind of lose your attention to something else. That's what I do a lot when I read. Um, I love to read, but it's definitely a problem I have. Um, and I think a lot of people have this problem where you start reading and then your attention just goes elsewhere and and you have to go back and read like your, your eyes skimmed over the words, but you're not processing them in your, in your mind. And uh, that happened to me a lot when I read this chapter the first couple of times because I, I just uh, I think the, the, the war stuff, like the battles and all that, it's just, it's not my particular cup of tea, but I am um, happy with what we learned. So let's get into it. Uh, so for the recap, uh, so I'll recap you um, so you are caught up on the events of this chapter. And then I'll summarize the chapter and I'll just go through everything that happens in detail. Uh, so in this chapter, we follow a lot of different characters. So I'll recap you on the situation of the chapter, like the, the situation that we are going to be exploring. I'm going to recap you on what that situation was like. Um, up until now. So we've heard that in the springtime, Emperor Amir Varam Rice, the Emperor of Nilfgaard, of course, will launch an assault against the North on an unprecedented scale. 
this assault led by Marshall Menno Cohorn takes place in this chapter. That's that's pretty much all you really need to know. I mean, this war has been going on, the Second War, uh, Nilfgaard waging this war against the northern countries. It's been going on for uh, probably close to a year now. Well, if it's in the spring, I think it started in July, and I don't believe a full year has passed. I don't think this is the second year. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm wondering, but it's, it doesn't matter. Um, but yes, yeah, so this war has been going on, and this huge battle, this unprecedented scale assault that they had mentioned is actually taking place in chapter eight of this book. So for the summary, this is the shortest summary I've ever written. And if you've listened to enough of these, you know, I try to keep them short and I was very pleased with myself <laughs> with this one. Here we go. Although it seemed highly unlikely due to poor reconnaissance and the division of the army, Nilfgaard loses a monumental battle that they began against the northern countries. And of course, there's a lot more that goes on than just Nilfgaard loses a battle. A lot of information uh, comes out of this, so we're going to talk about it. And I want to start out the discussion by saying this chapter, it jumps all around from person to person, letting us see what happened in the battle. And this battle, by the way, is known as the Battle of Brenna. And it not only jumps from person to person, allowing us to learn about the battle from different perspectives, but it also jumps from the present to the future a couple of times, too, from characters recalling what happened on this day. Some were there, some um, just read about it or heard about it. But that's a, another reason why it's kind of complicated. But since it's written in a kind of unorthodox way, I've organized my notes that I have in front of me that I uh, reference while I go through this discussion. I reference my notes in a kind of unorthodox way, like an unorthodox way for my series, that is. So basically how this is going to go is I'm going to explain in detail what happened and how it all happened and then sort of bring it back around to talk about some of the finer details surrounding some specific characters. So I'll talk about this battle, how everything happened the way that it did, how Nilfgaard pretty much lost, and then we'll go and talk through like the character perspectives. I'm not going to go in like a chronological order of like, you know, this from like page to page, like the first page to the last page, like I normally do. I'm just going to try to keep it in a more, um, organized way you'll see so the chapter in my opinion it just there's a lot of disarray and my objective here is to pretty much organize it for you um even if you don't need that it's uh available to you <laughs> coming up right now so menno cohorn commanded what is called the center army group there's these different military groups uh, that Nilfgaard has, and the center army group is Menno Cohorns, and this is the star of the show for Nilfgaard in uh, this battle. And he split up this group, which is what basically led to Nilfgaard's defeat here. And here's kind of like an oversimplification of what happened. So the reason he divided his troops is because he received reconnaissance that the Northern army was coming to relieve the besieged fortress of Vienna. So he wanted to cut off the Northern army and force them into a decisive battle. And he left some of his troops at Miami, but there's my, sorry, Miana, 
but there, um, there's definitely a lot more to it than that. So he sent a patrol and was waiting for them to return before ordering his army to strike. And one of the soldiers on patrol, I think there was just two guys, uh, he, this guy, this patrol officer, he did a really bad job because he was very scared. Uh, and the reason he was so scared was because he had to travel into enemy territory. So that alone made him nervous. He could get caught and captured and that would be bad. Plus, there was a recent rumor about a Squiatel elf who was you know, working with Nilfgaard and he was captured by the Northerners and horrifically mutilated. And I'm not going to go into the detail that the book does on how they mutilated him because it's just disturbing. But um, after hearing this rumor about this elf that was um, basically tortured by the Northerners, it made this uh, patrol officer that much more worried about getting captured because he didn't want to meet a similar fate. Who would? But because he's terrified, he doesn't travel far enough. He needed to go a little bit further in order to adequately perform his duty. And therefore, he misses the reserves that the Northerners had. And he reports back and Cohorn thinks that the entire Northern army is much smaller than it is. And that is a, another big part that, that has the impact that it does on Nilfgaard's loss here. And I don't know if it's, it's not said that if this patrol officer did know about the reserves and did report that back to Cohorn, what Cohorn would have done with that information like, I, I don't know if he would have said, you know what, that those numbers are too great. We don't have enough men to justify going into this battle still. We don't have enough soldiers to uh, for it to make sense uh, for us to risk losing. Let's just call it off. Or maybe he would have applied a different strategy. We don't know. But he would have done something differently had he gotten a better report. But he... Uh, he trusted the wrong guy. So when the battle begins, it's not very decisive right off the bat. It goes back and forth a bit between who's got the upper hand. At one point, Nilfgaard starts to get the upper hand when fighting the army from Brugge, Bruges, Brugge, whatever. But Constable Jan Natalis, who's standing on a high hill with King Foltest of Temeria, so both Temerians, this Constable Jan Natalis and King Foltest, they're on this high hill. Uh, they have a really good view of the whole battle. Um, Jan Natalis can see the impending danger that Brugge's defeat places on the Dwarven Volunteer Regiment from Mahakam. So he sent a messenger to their commander, so this Dwarven commander, his name is Barclay Els, to retreat and reinforce one of the other groups. But when Barclay Els receives that message, he ignores it. And he summons Yarpen Zegrin and Dennis Cranmer for a moment. So we get to see them again. They're a little banged up, but they seem to be okay. And then uh, he orders this strike against the Nilfgaardians that are completely surrounding them. Uh, and with the help of the Free Company, I've heard about the Free Company enough times now that I don't think I necessarily need to recap them. Um, they actually managed to hold off Nilfgaard for a bit, not without severe casual, casualties, but they do um, they, they do kind of a good job with that. So um, following this part, 
Menno Cohorn sends out the next group to begin fighting. Uh, by the way, the Nilfgaardian Center Army Group is made up of these different divisions, like there's the Derlanian Division, the Nausicaa Brigade, and so on and so forth. Uh, so Menno Cohorn next sends out the Vryhead Brigade. I don't want to, when I, <laughs> I got to say Vryhead Brigade, I, I almost want to say Vryhead Brigade. I'm not sure why. Um, but the, the Vryhead Brigade is this elven division led by Isengrim Fotiarna. He's a Scoia'tael elf that we met when he was threatening a Nilfgaardian prisoner all the way back in Baptism of Fire. So it looks like he made up with the Nilfgaardians since then. He definitely um, was not okay with them when he thought that they were trying to capture him and then he tried to capture them. So he's back on the side of Nilfgaard fighting in their war, fighting in this battle against the Northern countries. Um, so after the Vryhead Brigade starts fighting, Natalis and Foltest are told by a messenger that the Free Company and the Dwarves can't hold Nilfgaard off anymore, and it's time to save themselves. But Foltest and Natalis agree to send in the reserves, and the reserves consist of the Temerian and Redanian infantry. The Temerian one is what Yara was a part of, so this is uh, this is Yara's time to shine. This is him getting to do his patriotic duty that he really wanted to do, that he was so set on. So uh, this is when he gets to join in on the fighting. And they also have the Dun Banner from Kedwin join the, in the fight in addition to the reserves. And this is when the tide starts to turn and Nilfgaard's loss begins. And Menno Cohorn sees this change. He sees that his army is starting to lose and he orders the execution of the patrol officer uh the guy that we saw at the beginning um, of the chapter who was really terrified to even go on patrol he so he wants this guy to be executed you know when the time is right uh which this was a redundant order anyway <laughs> because the officer in that moment as uh Menno Cohorn was talking about wanting this guy executed in that moment. That patrol officer is getting killed by the reserves that he failed to notice. So uh, kind of some irony there. Then Cohorn sends what may be the remainder of the center army group and thinks this will be the solution or hopes that it will be the solution. But the Temerian infantry defeated them. So once defeat was obvious, Menno Cohorn was urged by some of his men to flee, save yourself. And Yara, from the future, which we will talk about more in a minute, we'll go into further detail and what is going on with Yara. Um, Yara wrote, he's writing about this battle, he wrote that Cohorn bravely denied the offer to flee since so many men he commanded had died here. He, he wanted to do the honorable thing. And uh, all these men that were under my command, they died. It's not right for me to get to live. Uh, we're we're going to lose. Like I, It's kind of like, you know, the captain goes down with the ship sort of thing. Uh, but the, <laughs> then it cuts to the actual setting of Cohorn at the battle and shows that he really wasn't being brave. He just didn't think there was anywhere that he could flee to since they were completely surrounded. But this Derlanian captain gives Cohorn his cloak and he suggests that he try to escape 
points to this fish pond. He's like, oh, try to go there. Here's my cloak with the scorpion on it. And um, Cohorn tries it out, but he, along with a few other Nilfgaardians trying to run, ride right into the these swampy waters where dwarves, including Zoltan, we know Zoltan very well, uh, were waiting to start shooting the Nilfgaardians with crossbows who fell into this uh, little swamp. And Cohorn, knowing the common speech, which I guess a lot of these soldiers don't know the common speech, but Cohorn does, um, he tries to plea for his life. But he got kicked in the head by a horse, one of the horses that went into the swamp. Um, I'm calling it a swamp. It's, it's not necessarily a swamp. It's like a pond, but it's very, there's a lot of mud and muck and all that kind of shit. Um, but he got kicked in the head by a horse and it kind of inhibited his, uh, or, or it, it kind of, uh, it just made it so he couldn't talk very clearly. So he's telling them, he's like, oh, I'm Menno Cohorn, I surrender mercy. And they don't know what the hell he's saying. And um, Zoltan just sees the sigil on his cloak, the scorpion, the silver scorpion. And he says to kill him and to do it for Caleb Stratton. And Caleb Stratton was a dwarf from their company that was killed in the refugee camp when Nilfgaard attacked back in Baptism of Fire. Um, so I guess that those Nilfgaardians that uh, attacked that refugee camp had those silver scorpions. So he just sees that and he said, no, to hell with this guy kill him because they killed Caleb and they do, they kill him. Uh, but Yara writes from the future that no one knows exactly what happened to Menno Cohorn. There were rumors, but nobody knew the truth about his fate except for us, the reader. So the one who killed him, um, which was probably Zoltan, I think multiple dwarves there were shooting their crossbow bolts at him. So it might've been Zoltan, it might've been somebody else's bolt, but um, they, they don't, they didn't know who it was that they killed. And, uh, therefore, um, especially with what he was wearing, nobody's going to recognize him. So, uh, he was probably just buried in an unmarked grave and therefore nobody found out what the fate of this infamous, um, marshal, what, what his fate was. So Cohorn died and Nilfgaard lost 44,000 men, which in turn put an end to their conquest further northward. Um, 44,000 men didn't die. Some of them died. Some of them were captured. But uh, this loss trickled into other events that put an end to the war, like Dewet, Joachim Dewet, uh, his army fleeing, and a lot of Nilfgaard's siege weapons getting abandoned in their haste to run from the pursuing northerners. So they were going to use these siege weapons uh, to take over some of the major cities like Vizima and Novigrad. And, uh, well, that plan had to get abandoned because the siege weapons were abandoned. Also, Ardal Abdahi was actually going to fight the recently reunited Kedwin and Edirn. So they are friends again, Demaven and um, Hensel. But uh, he actually, Abdahi, had, he got sick and he died, like, very quickly, too. So that didn't happen. Um, he was going to fight them, though. Who knows? If he didn't get sick and die, how successful he would have been, but it didn't happen. So that was actually just a coincidence. But the battle ended with the North victorious in not just the battle, but the entire war. So Nilfgaard lost the war against the North for the second time. And this is the second time that they started the war. Okay, as talked about at the beginning, Chapters told through the perspective of many different characters. Sometimes it's pretty detailed 
and long. Sometimes it's brief and kind of vague. Um, so for example, we get to see the perspective of some soldiers during the battle, but only for like a paragraph or two. And at one point we see these traveling halfling merchants uh, witnessing the battle from a mild distance away. But uh, for the more detailed or important character perspectives, I'll go through them in detail. Well, we learn some of what takes place from what appears to be a military academy in Nilfgaard from the future. And there are two students. Okay, this is weird. I don't know if you could hear that, but my um, Apple Watch Siri just started talking to me. Um, I think it might have to do with the way that I um, move my wrist, but I actually had to go in manually on my phone and disable it so that when you say Siri, <laughs> and this podcast is why, when you say Siri, um, I, it would my phone would start listening to me and like start waiting for me to tell it what to do. But I'm sitting here. I'm, I've actually cut it out in previous episodes. I don't think I've ever left it in. But <laughs> I would say Siri, talking about Siri from this book, from this series, from The Witcher. And uh, my phone thought that I was talking to it. So um, I had to disable that. It's like when you are as obsessed with The Witcher as I am, you can't have your phone who shares the name with a character um, listening to you all the time and then just interrupting. Like my watch just really did. Sorry about that. Um, so there's these two students providing an oral exam. Well, one of them, uh, his name is Fitz Osterlin. He fails the exam. Um, he may be a relative of the envoy Shillard Fitz Osterlin, who we've seen meet with Dijkstra in Baptism of Fire shortly after the death of King Visimir of Redania. Uh, the other one, the other student, is probably no one important, but he does a much better job answering the question the instructor asked about the Battle of Brenna than Fitzosterlin did. And actually, when Fitzosterlin messes up, the instructor instructor basically tells him he's never going to make it as an officer if he can't answer that kind of question easily, since there's never been a diploma exam where they don't ask about that battle. So this is one of the first examples that this battle, the Battle of Brenna, was very impactful on history, not just because it caused the loss, but um, it just changed things um, so much that it's a really a sizable piece of history. So there is this school, and then the chapter lets us visit Nimue again, but when she was a child in school, which is still in the future from the main plot of the story, but it's back in time from where we um, have typically seen Nimue throughout this book. So similarly to the scene at the Nilfgaardian military school, she's asked to recite some information about what led, what led up to the Battle of Brenna following another student who was failed for being unprepared. And she's in a school for sorceresses, so they refer to Asira Varanahid and Philippa Eilhart as our esteemed mothers. They also call them uh, the, the holy martyrs. So it looks like the lodge went down in history in a positive light. I don't know if that's for the whole world or if that's just in the magic community, but um, yeah, they get these, um, like they're talked about in this, with this esteem. So uh, it's, um, yeah, I don't know that everybody thinks of the lodge as super great, but we know that people who are practicing magic in the rather distant future, I think that. Uh, but in, in Nimue's presentation, she talks about how the Battle of Brenna basically was started by the Lodge. 
Um, she says that Philippa says, let us give them a great and bloody, awful and cruel battle. Let us bring about such a battle. So if this is to be believed, which I think it can be, um, we can assume that the Lodge caused this battle to take place in order to end the war, but it's not said exactly what they did to cause it. So that's something we might have to wait for a future chapter to uncover, but I wouldn't doubt that this is true because Philippa, she's, she's really, she's the one in charge when it comes to the Lodge and she's someone very interested in influencing politics and political outcomes. So I can see her trying to manipulate the war to achieve her goals of a united North and whatever other goals that she might have. So, and the reason that I show a little bit of skepticism towards this, it's just because um, things can get misconstrued over time. Like, like I said, this is, uh, Nimue is alive about 150 years into the future from the main events of this whole story. So that's why I think that like maybe things it's, you know, how it goes, like there's that like whisper down the lane thing, um, you know, just over time or through too many people, especially, um, you know, with the, uh, like I said, the influence that she wants to have, maybe it was just kind of said that way, but yeah, I, I wouldn't put it past her. That definitely sounds like something Philippa especially would want to do, um, get her way. And a lot of people would have to die in a cruel and bloody battle. Like she said, apparently. So we get to see Julia, pretty kitty, Abbott and Marco and Adam, a Pangrat up close and personal. We've only heard about them before. They're members of the free company that have already gained fame for being such exceptional soldiers. And in this chapter, we first see Julia when she receives reconnaissance about Cohorn's army marching their way. So this is before the battle happens. And she's skeptical about this information and needs to see it for herself. She doesn't want to just um, take the person at their word and you know, make decisions based on that. So she heads in the direction of the marching Nilf guardians, which is a very reckless mission since there could be reconnaissance officers or patrols of their own that she could run into, kind of like how that other guy was worried about it. But she's much more brave than the Nilf guardian reconnaissance officer was. Uh, but she, yeah, she's a very daring woman. So she takes this risk and then takes another risk by climbing up this very old rickety tower so she can get a better view of the whole makeup of the army and get a clear assessment of the situation. And then she reports this back to Adam and um, he makes the recommendation of where they should engage Nilfgaard. And they chose the spot or he, cho he chooses the spot because there's these fish ponds and hills that they could take advantage of to maybe help them get a bit of a leg up during the battle. And she agrees. She says, yep, this works. And the battle takes place where they decided it should in this area that uh, goes down in history known as Brenna. So we see a lot of this chapter from Yara's point of view, which is um, from the battle and also in the distant future while he's writing about the battle. He's an old man and the future part is actually kind of cute. He's sitting outside while his grandchildren are nearby playing and his youngest granddaughter is named Siri. So we see that he and Siri don't, they say the name of his wife, it's not Siri. <laughs> so we see that they don't in fact end up together, which I think was a long shot anyway, but it's sweet that his granddaughter received her name 
Although usually grandparents, um, they're not the ones naming the grandkids. <laughs> so I think maybe what must have happened here was he told his daughter about Siri and stories about her. And she named her daughter that based on the fondness that her father probably showed when he talked about her. It's just my theory, but uh, maybe that's how it went. So Yara seems to have gotten a happy ending. So uh, since we're very close to the end of the book, and this is the final book, I think we can say that this chapter wrapped up Yara's story, um, although it wasn't a totally pleasant story for him. So he, he, we had these nice things that I just mentioned, but uh, when we see him in the battle and he's really scared and um, his, he, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's terrified. And his friend Melfi, who we met two chapters back, dies beside him and he needs to go to the medical tent later to help escort his commanding officer who ends up dying from the wounds that he received in the battle. And when he gets to the medic tent, this young priestess from the temple school is there and she recognizes him and sees his hand got injured and Yar faints. So they decide they're gonna see him right away. Otherwise they would have prioritized someone incapable of standing or unconscious. And the halfling Dr. Milo or Rusty Vanderbeck says, we got to amputate. So Yara gets a big chunk of his arm cut off his hand and says it was above the elbow. So um, he lives with only one hand and part of his arm. Uh, one, one arm plus a little bit and one hand for the rest of his life, which is obviously terrible. But he found love and he grew old with his love and got to write, which we know is something he would want to do because he's into all that scholarly stuff. And uh, he got to be surrounded by family. So he seems to have had a good life overall. So that's great for Yara. Well, let's return to talking about the field hospital because we return to this location a lot throughout the chapter. Uh, there's four doctors in this particular tent and it's Rusty and Iola. She's the priestess that recognized Yara. And then it's Shani and Marty, Marty Sodergren. So... Um, Rusty was mentioned two chapters back and he's a relative of the halflings who killed the boys posing as soldiers that tried to rob them, rob the halflings. Um, that's pretty much all we know about him except for that he serves as a doctor in these battles. Um, Iola was another priestess novice from the temple school. Siri referred to her as Iola the second, I guess because the first Iola was that one that we met in the last wish book who, um, didn't speak and she was practicing for these trances that Nenica wanted Geralt to go in. Geralt sleeps with her. Um, and Shani is a medical student at the University of Oxenfur and Dandelion's friend who helped Geralt find Ryan's back in Blood of Elves. Uh, oh, and Marty. She's a sorceress who we met at the banquet in Aratusa and again in the following chapter during the Thanad coup. Um, she was described as a nymphomaniac back then and she was described that way again in this chapter. And uh, we actually didn't know if she survived Thanet until now. She was never mentioned again. And she was uh, doing some healing there. I think it was Dorgeray, actually. Dorgeray was the um, sorcerer who was really all about um, preserving wildlife and um, endangered species. And he didn't like Geralt. And he was very sassy towards Geralt because Geralt's a witcher. And witchers kill monsters, sometimes endangered species. And uh, Marty was trying to heal him. So we never actually found out his fate. But 
um, we didn't find out Marty, she was outside when there's like these Scoia'tael and all this stuff, this chaos going on. And, um, but now we know that she survived. Um, so the setting of the field hospital starts out really calm and quiet because the battle hasn't begun yet, but everybody knows it's about to get chaotic, which it does. And before the battle begins, Rusty gathers everyone around to tell them they're going to do everything they can to help as many soldiers as they can. But in reality, they're not going to be able to help too many people since there will be too many wounded to keep up with. So this comment made by Rusty helps to indicate that he's a seasoned doctor and has probably served in many battles. And it contrasts with Iola and Shani, who were very new to this. Like Shani is a student. Iola just showed up after being in the temple school for who knows how long. And uh, they haven't really become cynical by the nature of the, jo- of the job just yet. So after the battle begins, they start having patients to work on and it's pretty horrible. They have to amputate a lot of limbs while these poor boys are awake. Marty is there able to sedate them a little bit with her magic, but she's not able to do it the whole time. And she just gets weaker and weaker. Uh, the more they're there, the more she's using her magic. And um, But they're doing a lot. They're doing these operations and amputations. And Rusty uses this opportunity to ensure that Shani and Iola are learning and he explains to them what exactly happened to this wound and how they're going to fix it and why he's doing what he's doing to heal these people and he's making sure that this is a learning experience for these young medics but he also doesn't do it in so nice of a way like he can actually be pretty harsh and not very um kind and understanding when they're overcome by emotions which they both are a few times but in this kind of work, that's just how it has to be, I think. Like you see this in hospital shows a lot. The, the learning doctors are never getting coddled by their superiors, which is, uh, that's how it needs to be. They can't be getting coddled and comforted. Um, they need to become hardened and be able to handle the trauma that comes with this job because if they can't, then who's going to take care of the patients? So Rusty is definitely teaching them a hard lesson, but he's doing a good job. Well, as the battle continues, the scene in this medical tent becomes more chaotic as the men that they're operating on just keep dying and the girls are making mistakes and Iola thinks for herself that she can't do this anymore and that she's on the verge of fainting. Also, Marty needs to step outside the tent at one point to vomit because she's overexerting herself from the overuse of magic. But there's a couple of um, very specific moments that take place in the tent that we're going to talk about. One is where they bring in a man who was stabbed through the heart by a two-pronged weapon, similar to a pitchfork. And Rusty points out that this man should be dead, although his heart is still beating until it stops and the man dies. He points out that the reason his heart continued beating, even though he was stabbed through the heart, is because this man is a witcher. And his comrades who brought him in says that the man's name was Cohen. So Cohen, who we met in Caremoran, the same Cohen that helped train Siri, has died. Like Siri prophesied. Um, that's very uh, so sorry, Cohen. That's really sad. Rest in peace. Um, But yeah, now we got to really, there's just been a lot of um, foreshadowing of Geralt's death. 
we haven't seen him die yet, but there has been a lot of foreshadowing of that. And the reason I bring that up right now is because when Siri had that weird, creepy little trance and um, pre predicted, um, prophesized Cohen's death, she also prophesized Geralt's death. And now Cohen's dead. So um, it, it's not looking good for Geralt. But uh, something interesting here in this moment, it's interesting that Cohen decided to fight in a war since that's pretty much against the Witcher's code. And plus they have a whole discussion about it, um, about this particular thing in Kaer Morhen with Triss as she tries to shame the Witchers for not contributing in times of war, not contributing to the war. And I think this is actually a good segue into the next character whose perspective the chapter is told from, and that is Triss. And it's very brief, though, so we'll continue to talk about the key moments in the field hospital after this. But uh, Triss is presently at the temple school. Uh, she's not, not too far, I don't think, but she's offering no help. Uh, she's not at the battle doing anything. So she's with Nenica and talking to Nenica about the guilt she feels for not helping out. She says, they talked me out of it. And when she says they... She's probably talking about the Lodge. Doesn't say, but that's what I think she's talking about, especially because the Lodge doesn't want its members getting involved in these kind of affairs. So she gets a bit philosophical, but I'll leave that out. But it's funny that she, not that long ago, shamed the Witchers for their lack of involvement in worldly affairs and then ends up sitting out the next big one herself. And it's also interesting to see the hold that the Lodge has on her when Yen needed her help finding Siri, and she denied her because Philippa didn't want, to, want her to. And now she is feeling, she's like overcome by this guilt uh, for not helping out in the war because the Lodge didn't want her to. And even though like these decisions she's making, she's like feeling like this contempt for herself. Um, she's so bothered by it, but she, obeys she does what's expected of her by the lodge and she's she's just um listening to them so much and it's probably mostly philippa um and yeah she's just not happy with these decisions that she's been influenced to make but like nenica tells her here she says everybody has their own decision and their own hill you can't run away from yours that's like another way of saying like you made your bed trust now you have to lie in it so, um, yeah, interesting that Triss shamed the witchers for not getting involved and then she doesn't get involved. Um, but I know that she's got some trauma from when she was in the battle on Sodden Hill in the first Nilfgaardian War um, because she got messed up pretty badly there. But that's not why she's not joining in on this battle. Um, it would probably haunt her, but... She doesn't do it. So, <laughs> and it is interesting too that, you know, Cohen's there and um, the witchers are all talking about how they don't want to, they don't get involved. That's just not what they do. And and then Cohen gets involved. Although I think, I'm pretty sure he wasn't at, I think he was sitting on the floor playing a game with Siri. So I don't think he was necessarily in this conversation, but I don't think that matters. He's a witcher and he uh, actually is originally from a different witcher school. But still, I think that the witcher code probably applies everywhere. I think that. Um, there was pro there must have been a particular reason that Cohen got involved. I don't think that the, the reason it was Cohen was because 
oh, he was from a different school and we don't know what his perspective is because he was playing a game with Siri while they were talking about this. No, I think I think it uh, all it's the same for all witchers. So there's some reason why he did this. Uh, maybe it was the money or maybe he needed a sense of purpose or similarly to Geralt. Uh, Geralt wants to stay neutral and we see he doesn't do that very often. He doesn't get involved in, uh, well, I was going to say he doesn't get involved in wars, but he did help on that battle. Um, that was to protect Milva, the battle on the bridge. But uh, he followed along with Queen Meave's camp for a while, and he was kind of um, relishing the attention and praise as he was uh, recently knighted. And yeah, it was just a... Kind of another example of witchers getting involved when they're not supposed to but i don't know maybe they all have that problem maybe they're all conflicted or maybe it's just cohen and Geralt, the two guys that were <laughs> prophesized to die oh goodness okay well returning to the hospital the next moment the next big one i wanted to talk about is when some soldiers uh bring in their wounded commander and demand that he's looked at immediately even though the doctors are already working on someone else and they say this is the Count of Garamone, and you'll help him now. And Rusty basically tells them that the social status holds no weight here, and he's just going to have to wait his turn. Like we work on uh, bodies in the order in which we receive them, and I, I don't care who he is. If he is not the one that I'm operating on right now, then that's not who I'm helping. So when he tells them no, the soldier responds by saying that he'll have Rusty hanged, but the Count orders the soldier to return to the fight. He's awake and conscious enough that he's able to say, no, get out of here. You're not having anyone hanged. Go. Uh, stop being ridiculous. But uh, when they do see him, they have to amputate one of his limbs. And the interesting part from this moment is not only the fact that Rusty stood up for his system and money and power didn't win, which is normally uh, the case that's, that normally does win in these feudal societies, but also that the count was Daniel Echeverry, who was Dandelion's kind of sort of friend um, that tried to stand by Dandelion and Geralt when they were captured in the refugee camp after Nilfgaard attacked it, but uh, he couldn't persuade Visigur not to have Dandelion and Geralt executed. So this was that guy. Um, maybe that's not that interesting that <laughs> this is, this was that guy. I think the moment with Rusty was definitely the more interesting piece here. And Daniel Echeverry, a guy that we met before, just happened to be the one uh, who was um, present. He was the one that they were basing the, um, the stuff around the, you know, the, uh, the social classes and whatever. So the next time we return to the medic tent, a rather disturbing thing happens. A couple of elves from the Vryhead Brigade, they enter the tent and they threaten the doctors, showing disgust with them for healing the wounds they inflicted on their enemies on the battlefield. One of them, he walks up and he stabs a wounded man lying on a stretcher through the chest. And... Iola throws herself on the next wounded man the elf is about to kill, and Rusty, with a lot of fear, tells them to get out, and the elf grabs Iola, and he forces her off of the wounded man, and he's about to kill him until he sees that it was a Nilfgaardian soldier. So it's another example. They don't care uh, who you are. They're going to try and help you, even if you're on the other side. So um, that's just a doctor code, I guess. Like They just help people. It doesn't matter. 
uh, where you come from or what you do. If you need medical attention, they're going to provide it when they can, of course. Um, then another elf runs in and calls him to come with her and he leaves without doing or saying anything. But when this elf runs in and summons him, she calls him Yavin. So this was the elf from chapter one of the Time of Contempt who shot and killed the messenger Applegat while he was delivering that verbal message from Dijkstra to Demavend. Um, and in that moment, he was actually joined by the elf Teruviel, who we met in the Edge of the World story back all the way in The Last Wish. So I think we can assume that the elf who ran in and called him was also Teruviel, uh, or the descriptions were similar at least. But yes, Yavin was a guy that we met very, very briefly. Teruviel said, no, don't shoot that guy. He's minding his own business. It's just going to look bad on us if you kill innocent travelers. Um, like he's not a soldier or anything. Don't do it. And Yavin's just like, no, we're going to kill all one weekend. And he kills him. And that arguably probably got this war started again because that verbal message that uh, Applegat was going to deliver never got delivered because he got killed. And he was supposed to tell Demavend, hold your horses, don't do the thing that we were going to do where we were going to make it seem like Nilfgaard started the war. We were going to stage this thing. And I think it was Dol Angra. And um, yeah, Demavend never got that message. He move forward with the plans anyway and then um well they uh, the, the war got started and it looked like the the northerners committed the first aggression so yeah we i kind of got a little too far off subject here so bringing it back the part of the chapter with the medics wraps up after the battle is done and they're all sitting together outside the tent they're trying to relax after this crazy day that they all just had and they all drank some vodka and Marty performed this cheering charm on all of them, which caused Shani and Iola to just let sit there and laugh and cry nonsensically. And the charm and the vodka didn't work on Rusty as it made him feel kind of stupefied and exhausted. But uh, sadly, it's said here that three out of four of them would be dead within the next year. Uh, so Marty... Well, yeah, we just found out she didn't die in Thanad, but within a week after this, she will be dead. Uh, she gets stabbed by a man that she was romantically involved with when he became jealous that she was sleeping with someone else. And that's just her thing. She's a nymphomaniac. She likes to sleep around. And this guy, I guess, didn't know that. And he got really pissed and he stabbed her and then he got hanged for it because they think he was a soldier. Um, Rusty and Iola would die a year later after catching a new plague and they caught it from the patients that they were treating from that plague and the illness is known as the red death or catriona's plague so they die from the bubonic plague that siri brought over from our world that's really um god that's a it's, it's got to be a terrible way to die, of course. Uh, did you know, quick fun fact, um, that bubonic uh, disease, that is not gone. Um, very few people will get it and die from it. And you pretty much only die if it goes untreated now. But that's, it actually still exists. I looked it up uh, when I covered that chapter. And yeah, but um, and well, that's why it was such a bad 
disease back then because they didn't have advanced medical technology like we do now and they don't have that um, in this world so siri bringing that over is really bad and uh, these two characters that we don't know that well but we spend enough time with them in this chapter to see that they're really really good people especially they die like they should have um i think it was advised i think it said that it was advised for them to leave stop treating these people you're going to catch this thing and they're like no we're not doing that we're going to help them that's what our job is that's what we do we help people we try to heal them um and that's how they died trying to help others so it's really sad but luckily for Shani, she wouldn't die for another 72 years as the retired dean of the Department of Medicine at the University of Oxenfurt. So um, Shani actually seems to have gotten a pretty good ending. She um, lives to be an old woman and she was a successful um, teacher and dean and got to retire and uh, I assume like, like Yara, she probably had a good life. Okay, closing thoughts. Yeah, this is one of those chapters that it's very important. Like with all this stuff, I mean, imagine if we didn't get a lot of detail on how this war that's been looming over us throughout the almost the entire series, if we didn't get that conclusion. Um, even if it was explained that the North lost and Nilfgaard won, we'd still want to know how it happened. So it's an important chapter. It's just, it's not as satisfying since it takes us away from the main characters and the main plot line. Like the last chapter, Siri was teleported to what seemed like where Vilgefortz is. It seems like she's trying to rescue Yennefer. And then we um, have to see all these characters that we don't even know that well. But the in the information is, it's interesting for sure. But if um, a lot of readers didn't like this chapter, I, I wouldn't blame them. I mean, when I read this through the first time, I, I remember reading it so fast to the point where, um, yeah, I didn't process it like I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. And and uh, I yeah, just didn't really um, put enough attention into it to fully understand what happened. I left this chapter knowing that um, the North won the battle, but not really knowing exactly how it happened because I was just like, no, I want to get back to Siri. I want to see where Geralt is. Like, is Yennefer going to be saved? Um, but I, I, yeah, after having read it a handful of times now, it's a, it's a bit more interesting. Uh, looking ahead. It would appear um, that with this chapter, we're not really going to hear too much more about the war against Nilfgaard, but we might get to see, um, hopefully we'll get to see what the fallout from the war ending looks like, if that is visited in a future chapter. And let's also hope that Nilfgaard doesn't come back for a third war, because I don't think the North would get this lucky again. And I don't think the poor people that suffer the worst, the small, the, the peasants, the, them, the, the little people, you, you know what I'm saying. I don't think they would be able to handle it. Like all those settlements that were burned down and destroyed during the first war, they rebuilt them and they got burned down again during the second war. Goodness, they couldn't handle another war in this country. And I really don't think that they would be successful again third time around. So yeah, let's hope that this is the end. Okay. Speaking of the end, um, that is all I have for you in this episode covering chapter eight of Lady of the Lake. So just to let you know, in case you didn't, these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so, so much for joining, and I will catch you all in the next episode.